In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It might be fair to say that many of you have not heard of Lord Acton. John Edward Dalbert Acton was a product of his time. He lived in London and mainly southern England during the middle of the 19th century. An English Catholic, a historian, a university professor, a politician, and a rather prolific writer, Acton was known as someone who voiced his opinion with unflinching boldness, both in public and in private letters. Now, while you might not know or recognize the name, undoubtedly you will have heard one of his maxims that has been quoted in books, television shows, and it might even have come up in conversations with you and your friends and family. In a letter written to Mandel Crichton in April of 1887, Acton is denouncing the formation of a dogma that emerged from the First Vatican Council, held in Vatican City in 1869 and 1870. The major decision to come out of that council, or one of the major decisions, was the doctrine or the dogma of papal infallibility. In short, a dogma that states that when the Pope speaks or appeals in his highest authority, he is incapable of committing an error. So if we use modern example, if Pope Francis is seated on his throne in the Vatican and defines a doctrine concerning faith and morals or as something to be held uh, by the whole church, then it is automatically correct and well-pleasing. As a Catholic, Lord Acton was horrified by this decision and even traveled to Rome during the council to lobby bishops and cardinals and their assistants to use reason and history as a guide to what happens in these circumstances. In the letter mentioned to Mandel Crichton, Lord Acton says this, But if we might discuss this point, until we found that we nearly agreed, and if we do agree thoroughly about the impropriety of Crawley's denunciations and Phariseeism in history, I cannot accept your canon that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men, with a favorable presumption that they do no wrong. If there is any presumption, it is the other way, against the holders of power, increasing as the power increases. Historic responsibility has to make up for the want of legal responsibility. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more when you superadd the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. There is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. 
power tends to corrupt. Today's Gospel reading is one of the darkest passages, perhaps besides the passions, that we find in the Gospels. King Herod has been visited by the Magi, who tell him about the star that they have seen. Herod, and all of Judea, is troubled that someone, some usurper, was coming to take away his throne. A throne, by the way, given to him by Rome. When the Magi's do not return to him, suspicion grows and festers until Herod is in a rage, and he orders an infanticide. All male children, two and under, are slaughtered through Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. Why? Because some boy is prophesied to come from that region, and he will be made king. The boy is a threat to power. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. On December 28th, we celebrate the feast day of the Holy Innocents, the memorial of those who were slaughtered on the order of King Herod. St. Stephen's Day, December 26th, we recognize the first martyr of the Christian church, who was stoned while Saul, later St. Paul, stood by and watched. However, these babies, these holy innocents, were the first in what is now a long line of succession and saints and martyrs who were sacrificed, who were killed because of Christ. This story is found only in the Gospel of Matthew. But why is this text of terror even in the Gospel? much less in the, Christ, in the Christmas narrative. All throughout Advent, we sing and proclaim that Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is coming to be among us. We use language of monarchs and kings to give words to what we wish to express. And finally, the Christ child arrives. Jesus is born as a baby, and to the outside world, nothing extraordinary has happened only to a few shepherds, some magi, and the holy family, does it appear that something unique, something holy, has happened. But the world moves on. But yet our world is now invaded by God, and we tend to forget that. Throughout the Psalms, and even our Psalms on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we cry out that the Lord is King. And we can mean that several different ways. We can imagine God as a figurehead, some ruler of a nation without much power to administer law and justice. Or we can imagine a tyrannical king, someone ready to met out vengeance and revenge, vindication to those who oppress him or oppose him. But none of these are the type of king that God is, that Jesus is. And he certainly is not anything like Herod. Matthew is showing us early on 
how the difference between these two powers perform their roles. Earthly power is corrupted. It lives in fear and will do anything to remain dominant. Power from the realm of God brings forth justice, lives without fear, and never forces dominion on anyone. When wielded in the hands of mere mortals like ourselves, power, as Lord Acton said, does indeed corrupt. Now, this is all well and good for those sleazy politicians and despots, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with me. I'm not that powerful of a person, or so you might say. In all actuality, it does mean that we need to look into our own selves as well. There is much that we do, or at least that we claim to, hold power over. We hold power over members of our family. We hold power over our feelings and our affections. We choose to either show or withhold our love for families and friends, or even just the person we meet in the grocery. And much of the time, it would do us good to ask the question of why. Why do we feel that we can dominate a situation? Why do we feel that withholding our affections or charity from someone is the right course of action. Before the publication of our current prayer book, the Collect for the Feast of the Holy Innocents said this, O Almighty God, who out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast ordained strength and made infants to glorify thee, by their death. Mortify and kill all vices in us, and so strengthen us by thy grace, that by the innocency of our lives and constancy of our faith, even unto death, we may glorify thee. Today we don't often talk about mortifying or killing vices in our lives. But that is what we are called to do. Power in our lives that is not harnessed in the arresting love of Christ leads to vice. Power or love or money or fame, all of them lead to corruption or vice or death. And in one way or another, they all lead to sin, to us missing the mark, to us not living up to our pledges that we have made in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only by killing those things within our lives that lead to our degradation can we live into the power of God, the only power that doesn't corrupt but restores doesn't lead to death, but leads to life. C.S. Lewis gives us a portrayal of this in his little novel, The Great Divorce. In that book, a bus full of people, trapped in some sort of hell or purgatory, 
make their way to heaven, or at least a more heavenly place. At first, when they disembark, the grass hurts their feet because it is sharp. And some people are noticed by the narrators to be more like shadows or phantoms than real people. It is learned as we read through the novel that the grass is sharp and the people are phantoms because they are less real than their surroundings. Eventually, our narrator is confronted with his own baggage, his own sin. And it's depicted as the form of a creature on his shoulder that is attached to him. The angels in the story ask, they always ask, if they can kill the creature on everyone's shoulders. Most say no. Some say yes. For you see, that creature is the sin that eats at you, like a parasite, draining the very life out of us. And once that creature is willingly given up, killed, and made to where it can no longer harm us, then we are free, and we become more like our true selves. When that happens, the grass doesn't hurt our feet anymore, and we become more real and less phantom-like. We don't have to be King Herod with absolute power to cause much pain and destruction. All of us are capable of it. That is a stark reality, that one and one that we must guard against. And we might not order the slaughter of infants, but how often do we slaughter the dignity of the people we encounter or the people whom we love? In a few days, we will be ending our Christmas season and moving into Epiphany. Let us remember the life and light that Christ brings against the death and malice of this world. Earthly power tends to corrupt. The power of the Most High God restores and gives life eternal. Amen.